Well, good morning. Like they said, we're going to be in Luke 19 this morning, if you want to turn there. Uh, we're looking at the account of Christ's encounter with Zacchaeus. And before we start, I just want to deal with the elephant that I assume is in the room. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. <laughs> I mentioned when I was up here before, I uh, became a Christian in my late teen years, so I missed some of the... Uh, the youth training that evidently a lot of you received, and I knew there was a song to that effect. I had no idea of its power. Because <laughs> I've found over the last couple of weeks, whenever I tell anyone I'm speaking about Zacchaeus, half of them get this big silly green, uh, grin on their face, and then some of them just break out in song right there in the middle of the room. So if, if you feel led to do that, if you could refrain, uh, maybe we can get Actually, Alex was one of them, but maybe you can get Alex to, to lead a chorus out in the lobby. We could sing it. I would rather read it. So let's go ahead and do that, um, starting in verse 1 of chapter 19. It says, he, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my possessions I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. He's passing through Jericho. He did not intend to stay. And Zacchaeus is there. He's a Jewish man. He's a tax collector. Actually, he's the chief tax collector, the, the head of a local taxation department in the Jericho region. We've talked a lot about tax collectors, how they were viewed as traitors by the local people, and, and actually they were. They were locals who were working for or collaborators with Rome, who was the occupying nation, and they were extortionists. They would gather uh, taxes from people according to what Rome required, and they would also ask for more than what Rome required, and then pocket the difference and become rich at their countrymen's expense. And they were hated. And the, the rabbis uh, and the rabbinical writings back then, they viewed them as robbers. Even the rabbis who taught how important it was to follow the law taught that it was okay to lie to a tax collector, anything you needed to do to avoid paying taxes to them. Jer uh, Jericho was a good spot for a tax man. It, there was a lot of local wealth there. It was easy for a tax collector to get rich, and Zacchaeus was rich. And he was unpopular, as you can tell by the crowd's reaction. 
And he must have known about Jesus because, uh, as, as we've seen, all the tax gatherers and sinners were gathering to come and hear Jesus. And there's lots of commentaries out there that want to get into Zacchaeus' head. What was he thinking? What was he feeling that caused him to do the things he did? And we don't know that. But what we do know is that he really wanted to see Jesus. He was unable to because he was too short. And the crowd was not likely to be benevolent and make a way for him. And so he's in a sycamore tree. And he ran ahead to get there, which is not the most dignified thing for an adult man, businessman, boss man to do. But whether it's curiosity or it's an inner sense of need, he really wanted to see Jesus, and he sacrificed his dignity to do that. And in the process, Jesus sees him. And Jesus initiates and says, hurry, come down, Zacchaeus. Today I must stay at your house. I want to look at the, there's three different players in this account, three different responses. I want to look at all three of those briefly this morning. One is the response of Jesus. Another is the response of Zacchaeus. Obviously, he responded quickly and with joy. And what I want to look at first is the reaction of the crowd. They also responded quickly, but not with joy. They respond with disapproval. This guy has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. We've kind of heard that before. But in this case, uh, it's the entire audience, not just the religious leaders saying this. They disapprove him. They condemn Zacchaeus because he's a sinner. And he was a sinner. That, that uh, profession was known for that. And they condemn Jesus for being his guest. They're condemning him. The implication basically is it's not appropriate for Jesus to be in the presence of someone who's a sinner. The implication there is that it would be appropriate for Jesus to be in the presence of someone who is not a sinner, or at least not as much of a sinner as, as this guy was. In other words, some are more worthy to be in Jesus' presence than others based on their deeds. And that sentiment is still around today. If I'm good enough, I'm worthy to be in God's presence. And it has a couple of assumptions. It, there's an assumption there that... Uh, that a just God exists and that we are accountable to him. Some believe that, some don't, some haven't made their mind up, but it's absolutely worth your time to take an honest look at the evidence and come to an informed decision on that question. Most of us wisely do that with the more important things in this life, right? We spend time planning out, what's our profession going to be? How am I going to make an income? Am I going to get married? Will I have a family? What about my retirement account? And all those things are important. But regarding the existence of an accountability to a just God, many people don't give that much thought. And it's far more important than all those other things because it doesn't just affect this life. It affects eternity, and eternity is like a really long time. And so it's, it's worth looking at that. It's too important to leave to chance. If the Bible's correct that we are going to one day stand before God and give an account for our lives, then what about this crowd's assumption that our ex ex acceptability is based on our deeds? It leads to the question, or I should say the problem, are we good enough? 
what's the standard? How do we stack up? And what verdict will God render on our lives? Now, most of us know that we're not perfect. I've never met anyone, actually, who thought they were perfect. And the Bible agrees with that. Paul, in Romans chapter 3, actually spells that out. He says, everybody has sinned. Everybody falls short of God's standards, short of God's glory. Definition of sin is simple. You can see it in James 4, if you like. It's knowing the right thing to do and not doing it. Or conversely, knowing what's wrong and doing it anyway. Knowing what God says and doing the opposite. And it gets a little sticky because several chapters later in Romans, Paul says the penalty for sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual and ultimately eternal death. Well, that's a little uncomfortable because most of us have already agreed that we're not perfect. So if we're not perfect, there's some risk. So how do we stack up? What is the standard? What's the cutoff? What's my credit score here in God's account? You know, when, when I was younger, it was my assumption, like most of my contemporaries, though we're not perfect, we do, we do all right. We're pretty good. We probably do more good than bad. We're probably better than some, maybe most. And, and, and normally that manifested itself one of a couple of ways. Some folks felt like, you know, as long as I do more good than bad, God's going to welcome me in. Almost like, and it's a little comical, but it makes the point. It's almost like when I'm standing in God's presence, angels are going to come and take all my bad deeds and throw it on one side of the great cosmic scale. And then take all my good deeds and throw it on the other side, and the scale's going to do this a little bit, and we're all going to sweat. And then hopefully, the good deeds will outweigh the bad, and God will say, come on in. You know, almost like, so if my good deeds basically cancel the bad ones out. Or for others, it's more like an exam. We've all taken tests, right? The, the prof gives an exam, they score the exam, and, and then they adjust the, the exam based on the score, and there's this, like, bell curve. So God's got this cosmic bell curve, and some people do really well, some people don't do so well, and there's all these people in the middle. So as long as you're on the right side of the bell curve, you know, maybe you're the one that did really, really well, all these good deeds, very few bad, and you're going to be the one that gets the mansion in heaven with a nice view of the mountains, and somebody else didn't do quite as well as you, so, you know, they may get the shack by the landfill, but at least they'll be in heaven, and then there's the others that didn't do so well, and, you know, what can I say? Thanks for playing. <laughs> it's almost like, you know, our acceptability, the idea is our acceptability, my performance in comparison to somebody else. As long as I can find enough people who are worse than me, I'm going to be okay. And either way, the idea is as long as I am basically good, do more good than bad. If I don't do anything really good, I'm okay with God. But it doesn't matter what I think, does it? It matters what God thinks. Where does He set the standard? And fortunately, we don't have to guess about that because Christ tells us exactly where he sets the standard, or maybe I should say unfortunately, because it's not good news. He spells it out in, in a, a sermon that's recorded in Matthew. It starts in chapter 5. It goes for several chapters. We can only look at a couple verses today. It's a beautiful sermon. It's the one that talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers. God's going to take care of the oppressed. 
But then it also says some things that are kind of uncomfortable. Christ's audience in that sermon is similar to his audience here. They believe that God's acceptance is is based on our good works. It's a wage that we earn by our deeds or our religious activity. And Christ shatters that assumption. He says this in Matthew 5, verse 20. This is his opening salvo. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That is really bad news to these people. It's a bombshell because the scribes and the Pharisees are the ones who at least externally tried to follow God's law to the nth degree. They would even cut up their garden herbs and offer God a portion of their dill and their mint and their cumin to that degree. And they thought, you know, if anybody's going to make it to heaven on the basis of their works, these guys were. And Christ says, no, you have to be better than that. And he explains why that is going on in the next few verses. He says in verse 21, you've heard that the ancients were said, you should not commit murder. And they say, yeah, that does sound familiar. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Check, I've not killed anyone. But he goes on. And he says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, language in this, that word is raka. It basically means empty head. Whoever says empty head to his brother will be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool will be guilty enough to go to the fiery hell. Well, that's kind of stiff. But he's telling them something. He's saying it's not just your actions. It's your attitudes. It's your words. All of those things need to be, need to be correct. None of them can be bad. He goes on to talk about even your thoughts, even the things inside that you meditate on, the things that you don't say out loud. Even those have to be, well, I'll show you what it says here. 5 verse 48, he sums it up this way. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect on the outside and on the inside. Now, I will say, he's not saying anger and murder are the same thing, so if you're angry with someone, you might as well kill them because it's all the same. He's not saying that. (laughs) They're not the same in terms of damage and consequence. But he is saying all of those things cause us to fall short of God's standard. And that's totally bad news for every one of us that think we're basically pretty good because the standard is we have to be perfect or we will not be in the kingdom of heaven. There is no cosmic bell curve. It's not my righteousness compared to someone else's. There is no cosmic scale as if my good deeds are going to outweigh my bad or cancel them out. Any more than a convict standing before a judge will say, yes, it's true, I murdered someone, but I've never robbed a bank. It's not the law you didn't break. It's the law that you did break that requires payment. And the standard is perfection. It's a pass-fail test with a perfect score being the only passing grade. This is hopeless. It's hopeless. It would be like us deciding, okay, okay let's do, we're going to take a jumping contest and decide which one of us is going to get in the kingdom of heaven. And if you can put that picture up on the screen, this is the playing field. It's the Grand Canyon. So I eat junk food all my life, and I get ready to jump, and I 
waddle over to the edge and I go five feet and down I go. And someone else who's all pumped up and, you know, been taking the protein powder and, uh, and, and the cardio stuff, he, they source 30 feet in the air. I did the math. He's still over 95,000 feet short. <laughs> it doesn't show in the picture, but the finish line is off in the ether there on the other side. There's no point in even training for this. We can't do it. Isaiah 59.2 says that our sins have caused a separation between us and our God. The chasm is so wide that it's hidden his face from him, from, from us. The separation between the rims of the Grand Canyon are so wide that no one could ever jump across them. And the separation between us and God due to our sins is even wider. This is not some abstract theological discussion. Our names are in here. We all want to see justice done to somebody else, right? Somebody does something bad when a crime's committed, we want there to be a payment for that. But our names are in here. We're the criminal. We're the ones that have fallen short of God's standard. How many of us have known the right thing to do and not done it? How many of us have known the wrong thing to do and done it anyway? How many of us would want our inner thoughts displayed on these screens behind me? in a very large font, the things that you don't say. We've all done those things. We all fall short. If God looks at the heart as well as the outside, if fool is enough to send someone to hell, I'm done. How about you? If there's any hope for eternal life, it's going to have to come from outside of us. It causes us to call out to God for mercy. And the good news, the whole point of this passage in Zacchaeus is it does come from outside of us. We saw the crowd's response. Let's look at Christ's response. His response in this passage at the end of it is to give his mission statement. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He's on a rescue mission. For all who are lost, we can see him fulfilling the first part of the rescue mission in this passage. Christ came to seek the lost. Zacchaeus was seeking Christ, but it's Christ who sees him, and it's Christ who initiates. He's the one that calls out to him, comes to his house, stays with him. Even though the crowd was correct, he was a sinner, and actually he was one of the worst kinds of sinner. He was an oppressor of his own people. But Christ doesn't see the the oppressor. He doesn't see the label. He sees someone who's lost. He sees a sinner who needs to be saved. He doesn't say, look who's in the tree. It's the oppressor. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay at your house today. That's a very strong expression. It's not a request. It's not, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus would you mind if I stop by? He's saying, I must stay. It implies that Jesus sees his visit to Zacchaeus' house as part of his divine mission. He doesn't see a tax collector. 
He sees a sinner needing salvation. And that leads to the second part of his directive. The Son of Man came to seek the lost and also came to save the lost. He was on his way to do just that when this event occurred. He was on his way to Jerusalem. This, this event happened shortly before the crucifixion. Christ was on his way to Jerusalem to die. God knows we all fall short. No one's good enough based on their own deeds. That's why when the disciples said to Christ, who can be saved? He says, with humans, it's not possible. But with God, all things are possible. Even though our sins have placed us under his judgment, his desire is for no one to be separated from him. So he sent his son on a rescue mission to leave the Godhead, set aside his divine attributes, come and live as a human, live the perfect life without sin, according to God's standard that we were supposed to live and failed, and then sacrifice his life in exchange for ours, to be nailed to the cross, to die in our place, and then three days later, rise from the dead as proof that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. Only Christ could do this. In, in our culture, people say, as long as you have faith in something and it helps you, it's good. No, that's not enough. It's not just having faith. It's the object of your faith that makes all the difference. God talks, uh, speaks directly to those who are involved in pagan religion in the Old Testament and says, you guys, do the math here. You, you cut a tree down, you take half of it, you build a fire, and you cook your meat on it, and the other half you fashion into a god, and you bow down before it and say, uh, my faith is good, it helps me, it saves me. And he says, you're falling down before a block of wood, an inanimate object. It can't save you. Wouldn't matter if it was stone. It's a rock. It can't save you. You can have all the faith in the world in this podium. It can't save you. Some philosophy that someone came up with that's not true won't save. Only God can do this. Only an all-powerful God can live a flawless life, meet the standard, and then pay for a virtually infinite amount of sins in a finite amount of time. A human couldn't do that. Even if they could live a perfect life, they could only die for one other person. Christ died for all. That's why he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He is on a rescue mission. And after he does this, he offers payment, he offers forgiveness for our sins as a free gift to all who will humbly receive it. There's a couple things in life that are free. Some things are free because they're so worthless that any attempt to try to ascribe a value to them is meaningless. Some things are free because they are so priceless that any attempt to determine what they might cost or what you might offer for them is either foolish or offensive. My wife and I, where are you? You're over there somewhere. Hi, honey. 
we just celebrated our 39th wedding anniversary. She's put, <laughs> she put up with me for 39 years. Thank you, dear. Another event happened before that wedding took place. In her family, they had a tradition. Anyone who asked for one of the daughter's hands in marriage had to first ask permission from her father. My family didn't have that tradition. I was terrified. But I knew she was the one. And so I found myself in this awkward position. I have a very clear picture still in my head of sitting at the kitchen table across from my future father-in-law and asking him to take one of the people in his life that was most precious of all and have her leave his family and come be a part of mine. And somehow I got the words out, Mr. True, may I have your daughter's hand in marriage? He said yes. <laughs> Happy ending. But suppose I had said to him, Mr. True, I'll give you 50 bucks for your daughter. <laughs> you drive a hard bargain, 100, final offer. It would be foolish. It would be offensive. He's one of, she's one of the most precious people in his life. He and his wife raised her. He would die for her. There's nothing I could offer for what I was asking. All I could do is humbly ask that this precious gift be given to me for free. What's your salvation worth? What would you offer God in payment for a few drops of his blood that he shed on the cross for your sins? Will you give him 50 bucks? Maybe some good works? Some religious activity? You can't afford this. You can't earn this. There's nothing you can offer for something that precious. And all you can do is humbly ask for that gift to be given to you without charge. And the good news is he always says yes to anyone who asks with a humble heart and calls out to him. He always says yes. And the results are rebirth. It's renewal. Our sins are forgiven immediately, permanently. Past, present, future. The scripture says we become a new creature. It's a starting point. We're no longer the same. Life changes. New life begins. It continues right on into eternity. And you can see that in the final response here, in Zacchaeus' response of joy and transformation. He responds quickly with joy. He hurries down. He receives him gladly. And then you begin to see tangible evidence of his repentance and his faith right from the beginning. His life begins to transform. He stands. He gives a formal announcement. He says, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, and the list probably wasn't short for him, I give four times as much, well beyond what the Old Testament law required. And those verbs are in the present tense, not the future tense like a campaign promise that may or may not happen. He's saying, I give this right now. And that was done of his own volition, 
voluntarily. Christ didn't ask him to do that. But when Jesus enters a life, it changes things. And it leads to Christ's salvation statement in 19.9, where he says, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus was lost. Jesus saw him. He initiated. And he saved him. Look, some people meet Christ when they're at their wit's end. You're at the end of your rope. Your rope is a thread, and it's fraying. And if that's you, he's ready to meet you here right now. A number of years ago, I was teaching a meeting, not unlike this one. It was an evening meeting. We talked a lot about things in the Bible, and we also talked about Christ's message, his message of forgiveness, the things we've been talking about this morning. And afterwards, people came up, they were talking, they were asking questions, I was doing my best to answer them. And one guy came up, and, you know, he asked me some theological question, and I did my best to answer it, and, and he said thank you. And it just seemed like somehow it was a smokescreen, like it really wasn't what was on his mind. But he walked away, and other people asked questions, and I answered those, and the crowd began to thin. And then towards the end, I noticed that he was coming back up. And his face was very different at that point. It was real. And he looked right at me. This is hard to talk about. I was hoping this wouldn't happen. He said, I was planning to end my life tonight. But he said, I, I was driving in the car and I saw the church and I saw the cars and I decided to come in here and give it one more chance. Tell me more about Christ. And we talked about the things we've been talking about this morning. And another church leader came over and, and joined us in that conversation. And at the end of it, he gave his life to Christ. He asked for forgiveness. He asked Christ in. And the day he had chosen to end his life was actually the day that spiritually it started. And everything changed. If that's where you're at, Christ can meet you right here, right now. What possible reason is there to wait? Do you want to clean yourself up first so you can jump 15 feet across the Grand Canyon instead of 10? If Christ is calling, answer him. You know, for some of us, things are going pretty well, but you sense something's missing. That's how it was for me all those years ago. I, I was happy with my life. I was happy that, with the trajectory, but I also sensed there were deeper questions in life, and I was investigating them, although somewhat passively. I had no idea. When I went to a small group meeting one night, 49 years ago, I'd be giving my life to Christ later that night, and it has never been the same. I don't think Zacchaeus understood it all either. Why did Christ initiate with Zacchaeus? It's because he was the one in the tree. He was seeking. God calls and draws everyone. Some respond. Zacchaeus was seeking who Jesus was, and Jesus found him and saved him. This story 
is about repentance and restoration. If Jesus is saying, I must stay at your house, open the door. He's knocking. He's a gentleman. He's not going to knock your door down. He's not going to kick it in. But if you open it, he promises if you invite him in, he will not refuse. He always comes in. So open the door, let him in. Salvation can come to your house today as well. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in a moment. I want to say one other thing here, just a challenge for believers. And I don't say this wagging my finger. I've been deeply convicted about this all week. But I don't want us to miss another part of this story. God came to save the oppressed, the poor in spirit, the downtrodden. He also came to save the, the oppressors. Zacchaeus was an oppressor. That's why the crowd viewed him that way. But when Christ saw Zacchaeus, he didn't see an oppressor. He saw a lost sinner needing salvation. That's why he says, when I'm lifted from the earth, John 14, I will draw all people to myself, all people, without regard to nationality or race or status or moral track record or label, all people. The lost came who came, that Christ came to save, included the oppressed, but it also included the oppressors like Zacchaeus. He came to save anyone who was willing to confess their sins and turn to him and ask for forgiveness even the ones who were oppressing him at the crucifixion, which was going to happen in just a few days. How do we view, those of us that know Christ, how do we view oppressors? Those that, like the crowd, view as the problem, either personally or to society in general. As you walk with Christ, if you don't regularly contemplate and express gratitude for the grace you've received, it's possible to lose sight of the forgiveness that God offers and how far across the chasm he had to come to save you. And it's possible as your life begins to change to view others with contempt, even those who have the same thoughts that we once, we once had or do the same things that we once did. But we're called to follow Christ's example. Christ was called the friend of sinners and tax gatherers. That means Christ was called the friend of oppressors, even though he wasn't one himself. And it was his unconditional love for those people that enabled them to view him that way. This account should lead us to forgiveness, to understanding. It's a reminder that God saves all sinners, even us, and as his ambassadors, our thoughts, our actions, our love, our acceptance should reflect his life and his message. Let me pray for everybody. Let's take a moment and pray. To close this down, I want to speak first for those here today who are, are seekers. You don't have a relationship with Christ. God's been speaking to you. If you're ready to meet him, there's no incantation, magical words. It's the state of your heart. But pray along with me something along these lines in your own words. 
God, I hear what you've been saying. I realize that I, I fall short of your standard. I ask for your forgiveness. I believe Jesus is your son. I believe that he came and lived a life without sin and then sacrificed his life on the cross to pay for and forgive the sins of others and then rose from the dead. And I ask that Christ's sacrifice would be applied to me personally for the forgiveness of my sins. And I ask him into my life now as my Savior and my Lord. Thank you, God, that whenever anybody prays that, you always come in. Thank you that you sent your son to seek and save the lost, including those of us who already know you. And I pray that you give us a fresh appreciation for the depth of your love, for the expanse of the chasm that you crossed to build a bridge back from us to you. And I pray that you give us a fresh appreciation for the forgiveness you extended to us. And may it result in deeper gratitude to you for the gift of salvation and meaning and purpose and joy you offer all for free. Thanks for the honor of being welcomed into your family as your sons and daughters and for the privilege of being entrusted to be your ambassadors here. May we be faithful to represent you well. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.